The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Hi. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Doing so very fun. well. Uh, audience, if you will skip about an hour in the in the uh, one hour forward, you will hear a fascinating conversation about Stuart's knee pain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is the Curbsiders. And uh, on the show tonight, we're going to be talking about five different articles uh, highlighting medical overuse, which is uh, these are things that we should not be doing. And uh, we'll def- to introduce what we do first. We'll, we'll define it more. But uh, I want Paul to, to tell people in general, Paul, what do we do on this show? Happy to, as always, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We also get to know our guests up front, um, talk a little bit about what makes them tick, why, what they do to decompress, what makes them three-dimensional human beings. So by all means, please listen to that before um, listening did to you, the did, meat of the conversation, which is also Did you say three-dimensional? I did. I mean, I guess they're technically moving through time as well, so we can make them 4D if that'll make you happy. Well, let me introduce our returning uh, co-host slash producer for this episode, the great Dr. Justin Lee Burke. Justin, how are you? What's up, guys? Doing well. Thank you. All right. Uh, so tonight, I don't know if you want to give people just a little bit of background, and then we can we can tell them about our guests and get on with the show. Let's do it. So tonight we are uh, talking about some of the latest research on overutilization of medical care. Um, This is a feature of the JAMA Internal Medicine Medical Overuse Series. It's been put out every year. So our discussions uh, include uh, even more procalcitonin talk, um, the dangers of incidentalomas, why chest CT for lung screening might not be all that great, uh, where the best place to get antibiotics if you have a viral infection might be, and why we should not be treating subclinical hypothyroidism despite some of the guidelines. Uh, and we're here with two of the uh, authors of the Medical Overuse series. Pleased to discuss Dr. Deborah Korenstein, who is a general internist, educator, and health services researcher. She is the Director of Clinical Effectiveness at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City and the Chief of General Medicine Service, as well as a Professor of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. She earned a BA in mathematics from the University of Pennsylvania and her MD from Columbia University's College of Physicians, Surgeons, and completed her internship and residency in the internal medicine program at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. Prior to her role at Sloan Kettering, Dr. Kornstein was an associate program director of internal medicine, the founding director of the primary care residency program, and director of education for the Division of General Internal Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She also served as editor-in-chief of ACP Smart Medicine, an evidence-based clinical decision support tool, and was a member and chair of the EBM Task Force of the Society of General Internal Medicines, and a member of the SGIM's Choosing Wisely Ad Hoc Committee. Dr. Kornstein provides clinical care as a general internist to adults who are long-term survivors of childhood cancer and to patients undergoing active cancer treatment. And Dr. Dan Morgan is a professor of epidemiology and public health and an infectious disease doctor at the University of Maryland and Baltimore VA Medical Center greatest city in America. Uh, He received his BS in psychology from Reed University and completed his MD degree and completed his internal medicine residency at the University of Rochester. He also received a master's in clinical research from the University of Maryland. 
He researches how doctors make testing and treatment decisions and has funding from the NIH New Innovator Program in addition to the CDC, AHRQ, and VH funding. It's a lot of, a lot of funding. That's a lot That's of funding. Right. A lot of funding. It's more than us. It's like three <laughs> funding. Yeah, it's a lot of funding. Anyways, so yeah. please enjoy our thrilling discussion with Doctors D and D. I hear it's truly magical. <laughs> yeah, right. The D and D thing. It's cool. <laughs> you were you were so excited you couldn't even let Justin finish, no. and that was categorically awful. It was just, there was just nothing nothing good about that. Uh, I am so angry right now. I'm so angry. I'm not even gonna be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> Oh, man. So good. Let's start off by asking for one-liners from both of our guests. Debbie, can you give the audience a one-liner and tell them about something about yourself outside the world of medicine? Happy to. I am a general internist. I am not going to tell you how old I am. I'm a, an oh. educator, health services research hybrid and I am an avid cook, a lover of puzzles, and a closet math nerd. I love being outside my comfort zone, and so that means I'm pretty much always faking it in my life and my career. <laughs> Such a good answer. All right. What's a closet math nerd do? Yeah. Thank you for asking. How's your <laughs> good riddle? Yeah. A lot of Ken. A lot of Ken, Ken. No, and when my kids were little, which they are no longer, I used to do all those, you know, like mathy logic problems, like, you know, five cannibals have to cross the river. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and, you know, how do you get them across without having anybody die, etc.? That seems illogical. It's a dark math. It, yeah. It's doable, believe me. <laughs> I'll tell you about it later. Thanks. That is great. I'm learning things about you, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan, what about you? Um, I'm a 45-year-old ID doc, epidemiologist who tinkers with internal medicine, and uh, between a two-year-old son and a 15-year-old daughter, um, I mean, the only hobby I really have is going to the climbing gym when I have a chance. Wow. Paul, Stewart, anything to ask? Well, sure. Now that now that Dan said he doesn't really have much in the way of hobbies, uh, in, except for the rock climbing, I'll, of course, he asked for a book recommendation, because that seems like a fair thing to do. So, Dan, <laughs> tell me about a book you've enjoyed recently, if you've been able to do so. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I like books, and uh, and, and I think the the question that I'd been sent was like something that every physician should read. So, uh, you know, I think physicians often need a break from reality. And one of the books I liked a lot was N.K. Jemison's uh, The Fifth Season. Um, I, I don't see many. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Recognizing this year? No, this no is one. good. We usually get a lot of repeats, so this is great. Something we haven't heard. It's a Bruce Willis movie, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It sounds yeah. similar to it. Paul, fifth, uh, fifth element, Paul is what we were going for. <laughs> no, I mean, Sorry, I, I meant to laugh. I was just, I was sipping on something. I'd... Anyway, yes. Please <laughs> yeah. tell us about the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was relatively recently. I think it's uh, probably about five years old, um, and it's uh, this uh, kind of not dumbed down sci-fi. Um, I don't know, a different world, lots of things happening, and uh, just very engrossing. And um, the N.K. Jemison won the Hugo Award three years in a row for this series. Yeesh. Huh. So um, certainly she's been noticed for it, but uh, it's, it's a great way to lose yourself for a while. This, right. this is definitely making the way up my list of things to read. Stuart? Yeah. So 
my pick of the week is somewhat sci-fi-ish. It's a Netflix series. <laughs> are recently. we at? Yeah, are we at picks of back. the week? <laughs> oh, my bad. Sorry. Okay, Paul. My, 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 network, <laughs> my network kept kept dropping out, so I was like, "Where are we?" Debbie, okay. why don't you tell me about your favorite failure? <laughs> <laughs> oh, can I give you a book recommendation? Absolutely, yeah, 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 that yeah. would do as well. Anything to get us away from the pick of the week would be fine. <laughs> okay, book recommendation. So. <laughs> I never read about doctors ever because I like to not think about that when I'm not working. But two of my very favorite books are about doctors or about medicine. So one that I read very recently is The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, which is takes place among a group of gay men in Chicago in the 80s when like they're all dying of AIDS. And it's like really brings you to what it was like at that time among those people, which is really cool. And another of my all-time favorite books is something called A Constellation of Vital Phenomena. And I cannot remember the author's name, but um, it takes place in Chechnya. And there's this doctor who's just doing work in a war zone. And it's amazing. It's a great, great book. It's uh, by Anthony Mara. Yes, Mara? that's right. Thank you. Did you just look that up? Or did you yeah, happen did. to know? No, no, I, I, I did not know it. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you How many copies really... are left, Stuart? <laughs> Oh, I have no clue. <laughs> Probably infinity at this point because they print them on the fly. It sounds like a book about Chechnya would not be fascinating, but it's a great book. Stuart, now, would, did you want to ask our guests anything before you give your, your own question? Yeah. yeah, your picks of the week, rather. So uh, what's the best advice that you've ever received as either a learner or a teacher? And I'll, uh, I'll throw that to you first, Debbie. You know, I think the best advice I ever got was as a learner, actually, I'll give you one of each. As a learner, the best advice I ever got as a medical student was just hang out with the patient. And I feel like that was great advice. And it's advice I pass on to students when I work with them now. And I say, you know, you're going to spend all your time like trying to figure out what to do with yourself. But what you can do with yourself is just talk to the patient, hang out with the patient, talk to the patient, figure out what they're going through. And my best advice as a teacher was somebody let me in on the secret that you don't actually really need to know any more than your learners do about stuff. <laughs> you can just totally fake it and like, and you know, go through the process and say stuff like, Oh, well let's look that up together. And it ends up being a great educational experience and easy because you don't actually have to know anything. I think it's really funny when your learners think you're, you know, everything, but you only talk about what you know. So exactly. <laughs> Dan, what about you? Oh, let's see. I, this um, this one I agonized over a little bit, but uh, I mean, I think probably the best advice I had was sort of the the sort of mentoring example of uh, a microbiologist I worked with back in Rochester, New York, Marilyn Minigus, um, who just really uh, seemed to um, epitomize being curious, questioning dogma, and being yourself. I like it. I like questioning dogs too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll allow the pun, Stuart. Uh, that doesn't count as your pun for the episode. No, no, no. I, I already have a pun for this one. So <laughs> okay, yeah, it counts as a pun, period. No fear. Yeah, don't fear. <laughs> All right. Does any of the co-hosts, does anyone have picks of the week, Paul? Did you have something that you wanted to share before we get into the topic? Oh, nothing I'm really desperate to, no. All right. Justin? Nothing really this week that's on the top of my head, not going to lie. Okay. All right. So why don't you move us into the yeah. into the first first case here? Let's hit the ground running. Okay, so uh, the episode we're talking about a lot is um, one of these articles that's fe featured in JAMA Internal Medicine. We have two of the authors with us. And it's really focused on the concept of medical overuse. Um, so it's kind of just a basic starter point. Um, Debbie or Dan, can one of you kind of 
explain what medical overuse is, how often it occurs, and kind of why we're talking about it today? Yeah, Jen, you want to take that? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of uh, start off at least. Uh, medical overuse, I think, is, is kind of a funny term, but I think a relevant one in, in modern medicine. Um, and it, it really sort of was defined mostly by the Institute of Medicine back in some of the early quality of care type reports um, as care in which um, the benefits are no greater or worse than the harms, um, which seems like it would be relatively infrequent, but uh, it, you know, evidence seems to suggest that uh, it's relatively common. Um, and as yeah. far as how often it occurs, um, I mean, it, it's hard to say exactly, but it, it probably varies a lot by service and uh, where you are, but, you know, uh, anywhere from maybe 10 to 30% of, of the care that we provide. Yeah, it's kind of depressing to think about that. It's like, it, it, is it a phenomenon that's more common in the United States or is it just ubiquitous? It, it seems to be totally ubiquitous. It's been studied more in the United States as because we've paid attention to it here. But whenever people have looked for it in any in any system, even in places where most patients are underserved, like in the developing world, there's overuse. And usually it kind of coexists with underuse. So lots of people are getting too much and lots of people are getting too little at the same time. Does it does it tend to correlate with socioeconomic status? Like the higher socioeconomic I mean, I would I would hypothesize that higher socioeconomic status means using it more often inappropriately, or is it is it bimodal? Do we see any distribution like this? It's really hard to say because it depends a lot on the service. There are some services where it's socioeconomic, where there's more overuse among wealthier people. Um, but there are also things where it's bimodal. It, it's really, really dependent on the service, and each one has its own kind of dynamic and its own drivers. So it, it's hard to generalize about it. And we'll talk, we'll talk about different types. We're going to talk about a couple of different categories. So maybe you, if it comes up during it, you can point out some of that. Uh, Dan, I'm sorry, I stepped on. What were you going to say? Oh, no. I mean, I was going to say, it's, it, it, is, it is too bad, certainly, though, that um, in places with limited resources, um, you know, they, they don't tend to focus much more on uh, the, the things that work better and, and limit overuse. And that we tend to see overuse, uh, you know, across the board in many countries in many areas. And don't you think that part of the problem is that it, people just, they don't know, some, sometimes people don't know it's overuse or they just like, they don't have time to avoid the overuse. We, we've talked about some of this a little bit before in the show. No, I think those are two, two of the key reasons, uh, you know, not, not appreciating that there is overuse or appreciating that there is and just trying to figure out how to uh, get through the day. And I think time for physicians is one of the key aspects. Yeah. It yeah. is. It's also tricky to know when things are overused just legitimately because, you know, you have to understand benefits and harms. And a lot of times we don't even have, we don't even know really well what the benefits and harms of things are. So we don't even know whether they're overuse, right. which, which is a huge problem. It, it seems to me that if we have a, uh, a healthcare system that's not well connected, it would also tend towards overusage to say, let's say a patient presents to my hospital and I don't know if they've had, yeah. you know, X, Y, or Z tests done. And so in order to ensure that it gets done, instead of waiting two days to get the, you know, the, the paperwork from another hospital, I just say, you know what, I'd rather just order that now. And we end up ordering that. Is, is this also something that we see with disconnected healthcare systems or does, does it not seem to go away even with connected healthcare systems? I mean, I, I think people think of that as a slightly different thing, which is waste, you know, right. sort of redundancy that's because of a disconnected system, which is way more in a system, in a non-system like ours, you know, than in a connected system, like you're saying. Overuse, it's, I mean, some people consider that overuse and some would consider it a little bit different than overuse because you're, right. you know, 
you know that if the person had it, you wouldn't be doing it, but you have no way of getting the information. So it's more like that's more like a system waste thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas issues of a lot of people attribute overuse to financial incentives, but it's it's in many cases totally independent of financial incentives. And it's probably more linked to the idea that people want to do something or people um you know, are afraid of the uncertainty of not doing a test or it, it's, I think it has a lot more to do with the human cognitive dynamics of it. Hmm. That makes sense. You've, I never, I feel like there's an article somewhere where residents, and maybe we talked about this on a previous show, residents tend to do overutilization. And the reason is because they are worried that their attending would have wanted them to, or yeah. just that mm-hmm. kind of a, right. a safety to not be the one who didn't order the the that test count. that was obvious, right? That was we we talked we did the high value care episode with yeah. Kate Clancy, and uh, she was she was talking about that. Hmm. So if a patient says, you know, I've had this URI for one day, and they go to an urgent care and they get antibiotics, is that considered medical overuse or waste? I mean, I, I'm I'm just trying to understand where this line is drawn. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good a good question. Certainly one that we'll be diving into. I would imagine with the some of the articles, but uh, I mean we tend to. I think Debbie and I tend to have a similar way of conceptualizing this, but th- that would be overuse because it has an impact on the patient. So we tend to think of this as, you know, really things that have, uh, that are patient care issues more than just sort of cost to the system. Um, so getting antibiotics that have harms where the benefits are very minimal, um, you know, would be a negative if you're a patient. So that that's something we'd certainly consider uh, overuse. Yeah, why don't we go ahead and take this opportunity to just define the categories? We're kind of dancing around it here. So what are the categories that you used in the paper that appeared in JAMA Internal Medicine just recently? Um, great. I can dive in. Um, so we tried to organize overuse a bit into uh, some different um, aspects. So we had overtesting. Um, we also had, just looking through the the paper here to remember exactly which ones we used. Um, so over-testing, over-diagnosis, um, over-treatment, um, services to question, and then methods to reduce overuse. And I think today we kind of chose three of those topics that I think will be very relevant to listeners, um, but it's uh, we'll have the full article in the show notes and everyone can see kind of the top 10 um, examples of medical overuse that was identified in the in the past year, and actually, can you mention a little bit about the update in medicine series? This is a review of the previous year new literature. Is that correct? Yeah, we we've done it. I think five for five straight years. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, yeah, this is the fifth year. Years. So yeah, we review the literature from that year, looking for articles about overuse that are most impactful, either in terms of you know how much they impact patients or how much they impact cost or what the potential harm is to patients, even if it impacts relatively fewer patients. And then we have kind of a consensus method for deciding which are the 10 most important ones, and then we summarize them. Well, why don't we do the first case? Why don't we start with the great Dr. Paul Williams? You want to read the first one on overtesting here, Paul? And yeah. Lead us into the- it was a, is this a Justin script? Obviously. Yes. Yeah. Why am I the only person who actually is named doing something with overuse? I don't know. I just I was feeling that. I was coming up with names. I was like, you know, I'm going to Paul in there. Yeah, yeah. I'm the only one who's actually ordered the MRI here, and I'm not sure, not sure why, but sure, I'll do the procalcitonin Paul, case. Why not? everyone in residency <laughs> knew that you were just like ordering MRIs and everyone. I, well, yeah, I'd start with the LP. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. 
let us start with the case. So let's talk about the creatively named Mr. Tom Wiesman, who is a 40-year-old gentleman who's in the ER who reports some fever and productive cough. And the ER has just bought a shiny new procalcitonin machine, because um, I'm sure that's how labs work. Uh, and that we're very <laughs> excited to use them based on previous studies. We are, we are all amped up about procalcitonin, having read all the literature. And we're trying to decide if this gentleman needs antibiotic therapy and for how long. And so I guess... The framing of this question is, what, what is the evidence right now, as we know it, in terms of using procalcitonin as a guideline for antibiotic prescriptions when we suspect pneumonia? All right, great. Um, I'll take this one. Um, and this was a, an, an article that we highlighted that, that really should, uh, um, is a result of um, over-testing. But there was a, a randomized control trial run out of Pittsburgh um, that was in the New England Journal um, in 2018, where they tried to assess this question. And... Um, we know that procalcitonin is a peptide found in the blood that's associated with bacterial infections more than viral infections. So that sounds good. Previous tests in Europe have found that it does decrease antibiotics and lower respiratory tract infection, but only when it's been used with a mandatory protocol. So uh, not really in real life situations um, like the way it's used in the U.S. And um, it's often discussed in the U.S. as part of stewardship and something that can maybe help antibiotic stewardship. Um, but there are some issues that the sensitivity is not very good. It's about 76% sensitive for bacteremia, meaning you miss about one in four people who have bacteremia. Um, and uh, the specificity is not very good either, but I think that may not be as much of an issue for this. Um, so this, this uh, randomized control trial was a, a very big endeavor and was completely negative. Um, they provided um, procalcitonin, um, as well as guidance on how to interpret it and tried to encourage uh, clinicians to uh, stop antibiotics. These were in patients who had um, lower respiratory tract infections where they were uncertain if they had pneumonia. So they were kind of the patients that you worry about and that you think that maybe you could not use antibiotics and uh, be fine. But they found that uh, the provision of this test result, as well as some guidance, um, really had no impact on uh, physician behavior. Yeah, they they had like... They had a great handout. Uh, we 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 had done this article, I think, on one of our hotcakes like Journal Club episodes a while back, and they they had a handout where it just said like pneumonia, treat with antibiotics, acute bronchitis, you know, doesn't benefit from antibiotics, asthma, COPD, and they kind of gave guidance and and just that little like kind of just training session and a little bit of a campaign. I guess they kind of made made the clinicians in the area aware that this was happening. And it seems like just that extra education stewardship just worked just as well as if you had this test, which is I, in an ideal case, it would have been a binary test, right? That says like, there's bacteria, treat antibiotics, there's no bacteria. And um, I, I'm still seeing it used. So it's, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> this study's it's it's been over a year year and a half or something like that and do you, do you think this test should just be put to totally put out yeah i mean i my my take and uh and the take of a lot of people doing antibiotic stewardship um like sarah cosgrove over at hopkins and some others um is that this probably has very little value um and that it's just kind of a distractor from the the real issues that are that are present with antibiotic stewardship Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's even there was a, another randomized trial that was smaller where they used procalcitonin and a viral respiratory panel that would tell you if you had a respiratory virus, um, and that combined protocol had no impact on prescribing either. 
Yeah, they have to add a GIPCR to that as well. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trifecta. It's <laughs> kind of a bomb. <laughs> I think this story is really, really interesting about how hard it is to get rid of stuff. You know, once yeah. you start doing it, people love tests. Right. And so people started doing procalcitonin based on the earlier studies that really use these strict protocols. And now they like won't give it up. And, you know, they're like, it's still being done all over the place, even though I think we have good evidence that, you know, it's not changing management. But now once people are used to having a test result, even if they're not really making any decisions based on it, they like want it. Yeah. It's well, really hard to stop stuff like that. I'm not sure I'm understanding how the strict protocol made it a more useful test. Do, do we do we understand that or is, are there theories why that is? Well, I think the idea is that the, the whole point of this test is supposed to be to identify patients who don't need antibiotics. And so, you know, the clinician's nervous about the patient. They feel like they might have, have um, pneumonia. And the strict protocol basically said that if you have a low procalcitonin, you're not going to give the patient antibiotics. Right. Whereas in this study that we reviewed here that Dan was talking about, they were given the result and given guidance of we would suggest, you know, not right. using antibiotics if the procalcitonin is low, but they weren't, it wasn't on a protocol. So they were free to make whatever clinical decision they wanted. And I so guess I, I was, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, God, it's, I was just gonna say, it's an example of people, you know, I think they're probably their uncertainty and their nervousness just trumping the procalcitonin, even though they want that value. Right. Yeah. I guess that was the question I had. It's because my understanding is that the physicians still had autonomy. So they had the choice. Yeah. They had the option to be, I see what you're saying here, but I'm still going to do the thing that I want to do anyway. <laughs> right. I'm exactly. just wondering if we had a, had a sense of what the adherence was to the, to the guidance. Do we get a sense of that? Was that one of the things that was studied or not? They did report it. I can't remember what it was. Do you know what it was, Dan? I, I think it was 70 something percent. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to uh, dig it up. <laughs> I, just, I wonder if that means, you know, that, uh, uh, Procalcitonin in the real world doesn't really work, or that like procalcitonin is just ahead of its time. And as providers become more comfortable with a low procalcitonin, um, the future of clinical decision making may be put more of a reliance on it. I mean, I, mean, I don't I, think so. It seems like a dud, but <laughs> not, <I don't> <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my, my take is this is kind of like the ESR or something. Like it's, uh, right. it's such a non specific, uh, insensitive test that, uh, it changes probabilities a little bit, but uh, you know, it, it doesn't do much for you if you're an ER doc seeing somebody and deciding, mm. you know, vanxosin or not, or right. you know, yeah. whatever the decision <laughs> you're is. Still, yeah, you can't afford to miss one in four people with bacteremia, right? So, yeah, it's really frustrating to have to rely on clinical acumen rather than a lack. Of that. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> what What about those patients that have been in the ICU for some time and they're spiking fevers and you really can't figure it out? The cultures are negative. I mean, is that is that where procalcitonin might still be useful? I, I would think probably not. Those, I mean, I, I would uh, guess that just like most other uh, lab results, you know, including white counts and chest X-rays and whatever else, uh, tend to be even sort of like less specific in in them. So, um, you know, I, I think if uh, if if you as a clinician, I guess uh, as an ID doc, if if I was able to convince people a little bit more to stop one of these drugs, maybe it's helpful, but. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't really trust that it would make a, a big difference in, in that argument either. Understood. In the uh, um, Rhode Island branch of Cashlock Memorial Hospital, my understanding is they actually stopped. Uh, Procalcitonin is no longer available because it was being used so frequently in um, ways that were not helpful that they just pulled it from the lab. Kind of like docusate from... Uh... 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, from uh, Hopkins. I think the the battle for that's still going on. But right. Uh, <laughs> All right. It, it, yeah, yeah. It's well, also it's also I should mention actually kind of an expensive test. Huh. A lot, there are I've heard of several hospitals that are starting to do that, like just mm-hmm. not make it and just not give people the option of using it since it doesn't work and it costs a lot of money. Right. Which in pediatrics and in infants with fever, there's one of the algorithms utilizes procalcitonin and it's somewhat helpful. But that's the only time I've actually heard of it really having some evidence mm. behind it. But we use it on peds. It's a peds pearl for the day. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. Why don't well, you why don't right. you read the next why don't you read the next case? Let's go into our second topic. <clears throat> All right. So uh, in the room uh, right uh, across the hall, we have Erin O'Mark, who is a 32 year old female that came in with a really bad migraine. And it turns out that Miss O'Mark has had migraines all her life, but uh, Paul uh, decided to order uh, a brain MRI, <laughs> quote, just in case. Just in case. Just in case. Um, Good so thinking. Debbie, maybe you, can, <laughs> maybe you can answer, what, what's the consequence of ordering this type of unnecessary imaging? If it's just to be on the safe side, um, you know, is this, is this okay? And and what might be the consequences of ordering it when it's unnecessary? Yeah, so I love that excuse of like just in case, just to be safe. And I think it happens. That happens all the time. That doctors think that like doing the thing is the safer is the safer thing to do. And I think we've all seen this. That you know, you do a test and then you get back some result that you weren't expecting, and you say, "Oh crap! Like, what am I going to do with that now?" And you realize that, you know, you have to deal with it. And so we call those incidentalomas, but a lot of times people don't recognize them as incidentalomas. They just recognize them as, you know, a cyst in the brain or a whatever that now we have to do follow-up. And, you know, the consequences are just that you then do all these other things to people and there are all these downstream tests and treatments sometimes and possibly invasive procedures that some people sometimes call that the cascade. And there was actually a paper that came out today um, online in JAMA Network Open that I was very excited about that asked internists about their experience from these cascades from inter- in, from uh, incidental findings. And basically, almost everybody said they had experienced that in these cascades of care that happened after incidental findings. And they actually quantified harms, like 70% of people said it had caused their patients psychological harm, 15% said it had caused physical harm, almost 60% said it had caused their patients financial burden, and these doctors also reported what it had done to them, like giving them anxiety and taking up their time. And it certainly takes our time away from other more important things. That's for sure. When you think about how our, you know, our time is a zero sum game and we just, there's only so many hours in the day. So, you know, the thing about incidentalomas is they're rising because high tech imaging is rising and they're, they're a natural consequence of doing imaging as we know. And it, actually in a couple of other updates in past years, in the last couple of years, We've reviewed studies that showed that advanced imaging for headache has increased and also for relatively low yield um, respiratory problems in the ER. Like people are getting more and more CT scans for things that are probably not really much of anything. And so all of that leads to more and more incidental findings. And I, I, I feel like this is something that patients have totally experienced and they, you know, they understand it and doctors have certainly experienced it. And so it can, it can it can be time consuming and invasive. And I mean, I have some horror stories about, about some of this stuff and the consequences of it. I, I know of this, I can, I can tell you my big horror story. This is a patient. This happened at Cash Lack? Uh, <laughs> happened at Cash I actually don't know where it happened. So I don't okay. even have to okay, say it good, happened good, at Cash Lack. This is, this is somebody, <laughs> it, was <probably> <laughs> it was Cash Lack someplace. 
this is an older woman who had smoked many, many, many years ago, a little bit, like basically was a non-smoker, went to her internist in the community who did a chest X-ray for like no reason, saw a mass, ended up getting a CT scan that confirmed this mass. It lit up on PET, which they took as an indication of cancer, probably. She ended up getting bronched for a diagnosis. The bronch was like aborted in the middle because something went wrong. She ended up with vocal cord damage and like really bad vocal cord damage, hoarseness. She had to stop talking for weeks on end, which was very difficult for her. They still weren't sure what it was because they had to stop the bronch. So she ended up having a resection. Um, she had a thoracotomy and it turned out to be not cancer, probably infection, but they didn't even send it for all the right stuff. So then she ended up on home isolation to rule out TB. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> oh my God. All of which was negative. And, you know, months and months and months into this, she ended up not having a diagnosis and never having had shortness of breath or cough and like being completely fine. Yeah. And this, the chest x ray was just done just because she had a random history of smoking and they were. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, presumably. But the best part of the story is she went back to the same internist. She, she recognized that he should never have done the chest x ray, but she still liked him. And the following year, when she went back for her next annual physical, he wanted to do another chest x ray. Nice. <laughs> I just wanted to make, make sure that it uh, resolved. Yeah. She's yeah. radiation <laughs> therapy. He and might, she declined, actually. He might have a better case for the second chest x ray. <laughs> yeah, right. Then she needed it. Now that he. Yeah. Ah, oh, great story. Which kind of brings us to the next uh, case. Well, here, uh, uh, are well, we done? Not, I don't know if we're done yet. Oh, maybe we're not. Yeah, well, no, yeah. we should say we should say more. Yeah, there's some more. There's some good. I know you're excited about your your joke, uh, Stuart. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, I think there was there's some other really good discussion about um, incident alomas, and so uh, clearly they have negative consequences. Can you guys talk a little bit about um, what imaging studies are maybe most associated with incident alomas, or what incident alomas are most worrisome when they pop up? I mean, I, I, from the study that we reviewed, they found the highest rates of incidental findings with cardiac MRI, chest CT, and CT colonography, which I think is really interesting, particularly with cardiac MRI and CT colonography, because those are both tests where like, you're looking for something very specific, but you're imaging a lot of other stuff. And so it totally makes sense that you're going to find all kinds of incidental findings. And, and that's been actually a big concern with CT colonography that people talked about theoretically before this was even documented. And, yeah. you know, interestingly, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? <laughs> no, no, no. I want to hear what was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the, sorry, I need to slow down. The, you know, rates of malignancy varied a lot. In incidental brain findings, they were cl literally close to zero in this study. But in breast findings, it was 42% of incidental findings reflected cancer. But I'm not sure how to interpret that because my guess is that a lot of that was DCIS and maybe LCIS, you know, early, really early stage stuff that maybe one could argue wasn't all that clinically important to find. They didn't really report that in the, in the paper. From my experience working, uh, first as a primary care doctor, now as a hospitalist, like when I'm admitting people as a hospitalist, like almost every morning when I come in and I'm looking at the new patients that came in overnight, I'm like, okay, keep making note of all the incidental findings on the imaging to make sure I put them in the discharge summary so that the prim <laughs> poor primary care doctor can follow them up. Right. Just the number of thyroid ultrasounds I'm stuck with, but the CT scan is uh, done as an inpatient. Yeah. 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 
we don't even want to go down the pathway of what what happens with thyroid ultrasounds too. I mean, you know, with the the, the South Korea experience where they they started doing screen, screening and found a you know fifteen times the rate of thyroid cancer with no change in in outcomes. Right. Right. Yeah. And sometimes these things propagate forever. You know, someone has a lung nodule and you're following it and it gets annual follow-up like forever. Yeah. It's just very hard to put a stop to some of these things sometimes. Was there any suggestion how to mitigate this this issue with incidental lomas other than just uh, clinicians really thinking twice before they order studies? But was there any sort of, did the authors give any sort of hope for, for people out there or are we just doomed to keep having this happen? I'm. I don't think they had any hope. <laughs> There's no hope. That was. I, I appreciate that very candid answer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, there, there's hope if we are. If we all collectively were a little bit more thoughtful. I mean, it's oh, any time you image, there are going to be incidental findings. We're yeah. not going to make it go away. Yeah. But I think being the more thoughtful we can be, and I think being thoughtful about when an incidental finding really doesn't need yes. that really aggressive workup is incredibly important. Right. Yeah, and I say, I mean, John Yanotis was the uh, last author on this. He's not exactly the the most hopeful type about the, <laughs> the future of medicine. But uh, I mean, I, I've heard people um, like I think uh, William Black at uh, Dartmouth, who's a radiologist who's done a lot with overdiagnosis, talk about the the possibility of trying to black out sections of the scan if uh, that wasn't the goal of the scan. Um, I don't think they're actually doing it, but. Um, you know, like is, is a way that maybe a, f- a future approach to dealing with this. So like if you do a, um, you know, like a CT of the, uh, the lungs and y- that you would black out the parts of the abdomen that are incidentally mm. picked up um, just because there's getting to be finer and finer resolution and more um, incidental findings with uh, these different scans we do. It's a really interesting. Interesting. Very interesting way to tackle that, that problem. Yeah, I, I know in our system, when we order a cardiac CT angiogram, we get two reports, one from the radiologist, which ha- says nothing about the heart and says, uh, you know, if you want, if you want, want to know anything about the heart, read, read the cardiologist report. But yet yeah. they have like a massive impression with all sorts of incidental findings every single time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, their motivation is to what they're worried about is getting sued for having missed something. Right, right, right. So, like, you know, the radiologist is motivated to pick up every incidental finding. And that that's like that's a serious problem. I've never heard anybody talk about how to fix that. But that, so of course the radiologist wants to write down everything to, you know, to cover their butt. Stuart, do you want to <laughs> read the next case here? Absolutely. So our next case, uh, so in the clinic, we've got Ash Puffington. He's a 62-year-old heavy smoker that quit five years ago. So currently, the USPSTF recommends annual screening for lung cancer with low-dose compute, computed tomography in adults aged 55 to 80 years old who have had a 30-pack year smoking history and currently smoke or have quit within the fifth, past 15 years. So Ash wants to know how strong the evidence is for this test because, as he puts it, he thinks we're just blowing smoke. Ah, <laughs> uh, nice. Mm. <laughs> so how strong is this evidence? So I'm going to start that one too. So <laughs> it is both strong and not strong at the same time. So in many ways, this recommendation has better evidence than many cancer screening recommendations that we do. It was based on the national lung screening. Uh, I'm sorry, the national lung screening. What's the T? Uh, the NSLT trial. trial. Yes. Think, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> which was a randomized trial, which took randomized smokers to screening with CT scan versus 
screening with a chest x-ray, which has shown to be not helpful and potentially harmful, actually, in the past. And they found a mortality benefit with a number needed to screen for lung cancer death of 308 in high-risk smokers. So people who had at least a 30-pack year smoking history, who were aged 55 to 75, not 80, as the guideline says, and who had, if they were quit, if they had quit, they had to have quit within the last 15 years. So that led to new guidelines, and and it was really all driven by that one study. But since then, there have been subsequent studies that have kind of had much less impressive results, including an observational study in the VA system that showed a much higher rate of false positives than what was found in the National Lung Screening Study. So in, in the NSL, in NLST, it was 26% of people in the CT group had false positives, but it was more than twice that in the VA study that, that was like a real-world application. And so that's the problem. That's like the downside of the screening is all the stuff that you find that's not cancer. The study that we reviewed is, is really interesting. It's an interesting proof of principle, I think, because what they did is they looked at patients based on their risk for lung cancer. And in theory, any treatment or, you know, in, in a sense, a screening program is a treatment too. So anything you do to people is going to be more effective in higher risk patients. They have more, to benef- more room to benefit kind of. And usually the harms are the same regardless of their risk for the underlying disease because the harms don't really have anything to do with their risk for lung cancer. And they showed that in this study. So they showed that the highest risk group um, had a lot of benefit from screening and the lowest risk group had very little to essentially no benefit from screening. And they also interestingly found that a lot of patients who were screened in the VA system were actually low risk patients who shouldn't have even qualified, which, you know, speaks to how application of stuff like this is always pretty imperfect. But, you know, it's a really great proof of principle. The number needed to screen ranged from 6,900 in the low risk group. And I think that was not even statistically significant. So there was no benefit to 687 in the high risk group. So, you know, an order of magnitude better, more effective in the high risk group. I thought it was interesting. They talked about the screening efficiency as well where the they, they kind of define that as like how many patients, uh, how often were you getting, you, you talked about false, false positive results that either led to like follow-up imaging or, or some sort of invasive procedure to prove whether or not this was lung cancer. Um, and I don't think they gave like a number needed to harm specifically, but it was, the percentages were pretty high from what I remember. Yeah, those ratios are really, are really, variable and they varied like in the different risk groups. Interestingly, in the VA study, not this study, but the study that had shown a higher rate of false positives, they had a ratio of 40 to one of incidental findings to lung cancer nodules, which is, I think that number is like really telling, you know, you're 40 times as likely to have an incidental, excuse me, incidental finding than a lung cancer. But yeah, it's the other, the, the really interesting thing about lung cancer screening also is that the uptake across the country has been really poor and probably it's been better among the people who benefit least strangely, right. which is not what we want. Agreed. Yeah. Those, those people who don't smoke, you know, yeah. or yeah. Stop no, smoking. seriously, that's who asks for them. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. Cause they've like made healthy behavior changes. They're like, you know, I, I think the, 
the audience sh- should know how to risk stratify people. I think in this study, they use some sort of model that I- I'm not sure that it's like something you can put into MD calc and it's, it might be specific to the VA, right? So no, no, sure. it's called the, it's called the Bach model. Okay. It was actually um, created by Peter Bach, who, with whom I share a wall. At some oh, point. really? Okay. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, so be cool, everybody. Yeah, be cool about that. <laughs> and no, it's, I, I don't know if it's on MD Calc, but it's pretty widely available. You could, the so problem is can... it's not like super easy. It's not like one of those, you know, one, two, three, and you have a number, it spits out a number for you, mm-hmm. but, but it is pretty reliable. And I mean, they demonstrated essentially that it worked. Okay. Even outside the VA population. So people could use this if they're, if they're trying to convince a patient and then I guess, so that would be one thing I'd think about just like if I was, if I'm listening to this show, okay, how can I restratify? So they can look up the Bach model and plug their patient in. And then the other thing would to think about is like, um, did they talk about like how long the life, did they talk about life expectancy and screening in this one? Or just like, I, I don't remember if they did or didn't, but that's another thing. Cause like if someone's 80, if they, if they're not going to live too much longer in your estimate, then, you know, then, then you have to factor that into your screening as well. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, most of the, the guidelines exclude people with in general with limited life expectancy. And the, it was actually a little bit controversial that it went up to 80 because the evidence went up to 75, not 80 yeah. The study. And they modeled out, you know, a healthy 80 year old thinking that a healthy 80 year old would benefit because people die relatively quickly of lung cancer. So the benefits a little quicker than it is with like, you know, prostate cancer, which it would like take forever to get mortality benefit from prostate cancer screening. Okay. Um, but absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people that that's the other thing about older smokers is a lot of them have competing illness, you know, they may have end stage COPD and then it might not make any sense to screen them for lung cancer. Yeah. Anything else with this one, or do you want to move on? I think we have two more two more uh, articles left to go through. No, I mean, I think the, I mean the, the only thing I think it's really key to take away beyond just sort of doing if you do lung cancer screening or not is just uh, trying to have a sense of risk, and that you know people who have a greater chance of a bad outcome are the ones who have a greater potential benefit from an intervention. Um, you know, and this goes for lung cancer screening or you know. Uh, uh, hypertension reduction or whatever. So I think just keeping, being aware of that, that if, if you're, if people are generally healthy, it's very hard to actually help them because they have a very <laughs> low chance of, you know, some bad outcome. So, um, the worried, well, you know, you're mostly trying to protect them from, uh, medical things that we do. Whereas, uh, people have a much higher risk, have a potential for benefit. When I, I one of the points that was made, I think in the, the incidentaloma, uh, study as well. I, I think it probably applies to this one is also this is useful for patient counseling. I don't think we do our patients a real service by not talking about the risks of sort of overdiagnosis and, and finding incidentalomas. We just kind of send them off for these tests and then they come back and then we unload a bunch of anxiety on them. So, so some pre-counseling would probably be helpful regardless of what kind of imaging study that you're actually ordering. No, I think that's a, a great point. Um, and I would say, I mean, now that we have time to dive into this, uh, in a separate project, Debbie and I have been working on trying to to improve testing and sort of have harms and benefits of testing. And uh, so we're, we're trying to work on a website, testingwisely.com, to to have like some decision aids and stuff for this type of conversation. Yeah, I, I think this is the kind of thing, it's, it's like so hard to commit these numbers to memory. And this is a place where like people say AI is going to take our jobs in the future. I think in the near term, just having AI help with this sort of thing, or just even just like complicated algorithms that you can plug in some stuff and it'll, it'll help give you some guidance. Um, I think that would be very, very useful. Justin, you want to read this next case here? Absolutely. So... More and more patients are seeking treatment at urgent care facilities, um, and sometimes they get a bad rap. 
Um, let's say Matt, he is a hypothetical 30-something-year-old male who goes to an urgent care facility, and he has a viral illness. What, uh, what's the estimated likelihood that he is going to get antibiotics for any reason? Yeah, right, I'm going well, to want those <laughs> antibiotics. So, Dan, please don't deny me. <laughs> it's the only thing that works. My doctor does it for me all the time. <laughs> Great. Yeah, so um, this is uh, one, one that I'll, I'll take on. And uh, this was a, a study. It was, it was a relatively small article in JAMA Internal Medicine, but uh, was performed by the CDC and people from uh, Pew Charitable Trust. And they were trying to look at um, antibiotic use in different areas of, um, of primary care. And so they were looking at um, urgent care versus emergency um, room visits versus primary care facilities. And uh, if you, it turns out across the country, um, according to uh, administrative data that they looked at, um, if you show up with the viral illness into an urgent care clinic, you have about a 46% chance of getting an antibiotic. It's not bad. It's a coin flip. <laughs> I like those odds. <laughs> pretty, pretty good. Go up twice, you got them. As an antibiotic enthusiast, I love those odds. <laughs> as an id doc how do you feel about this is, is this, uh, <laughs> how do you great. Uh, yeah dan you know. what's your let's just start with this how how would you counsel there's i'm sure there's people listening that work at urgent care facilities and are probably feeling a little bit like you know threatened by our conversation here how what would your plea be to them um about how they should think about prescribing antibiotics yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably, uh, you know, similar to the the message for primary care docs who've dealt with this more and are in a, actually an easier setting to uh, to not give antibiotics when they think it may be inappropriate because they have more continuity with patients. Um, but I mean, I think um, probably a, a key aspect is just to realize that, uh, you know, when patients show up at seeking care and they may even be asking for an antibiotic because they know that's what worked in the past when they had a viral illness, but to know that patients are really seeking uh, attention and someone to to address their needs. So, um, you know, even if they, uh, if you're pretty certain they don't need it, um, there's room to talk, talk with the patient about, you know, what they do need or to try to f- um, figure out some alternatives to, to giving an antibiotic if you really think that it's not going to benefit um, them. I, I would also, I would also add to that, that, you know, a lot of people sometimes do come in, obviously asking for antibiotics, but also a lot of times we think people want antibiotics and we might be wrong. Like there was this great study in pediat- of pediatricians and their your children who came in where the, Justin, I don't know if you're familiar with this study. Yes. yes yeah. yeah. So the pediatricians were asked which parents want antibiotics and the parents were asked, like, do you want antibiotics? And the pediatricians were completely wrong. Like <laughs> they had no idea who wanted antibiotics. And I mean, the study happened to have been done in pediatrics, but I'm sure it's exactly the same in adult medicine. So we assume that people want this stuff. And I think we feel like it's faster just to, you know, give it to them. But sometimes they don't even want it. They just want, you know, like Dan said, like they want reassurance. They want you to talk to them. And, you know, antibiotics, it's not even that hard sometimes to not give them antibiotics. Dan, anything else nope. you wanted to highlight about this? I mean, I, I I think it's just a really interesting study with uh, urgent care being such a new part of of medicine in the United States that you know is growing uh, very quickly. Um, but they so they did look at uh, urgent care um, clinics compared to uh, ER visits and primary care, and they found that urgent care was about three times as likely to give antibiotics for viral illness as primary care. So uh, any- yeah. Was there any correlation with urgent care centers that were, say, in a pharmacy, say, 
like a minute clinic type thing? Because it seems like that there's like a, I don't know, maybe it's uh, it, it would be encouraged. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good question. With the data they had, I don't think they they had the ability to look at that. Um, they were looking at Truven administrative data, and I don't think they had a. At least they didn't report in their article um, if they could look at that. PCPs seem to be the best antibiotic stewards, or are mistreating the most bacterial infections. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, probably. <laughs> I remember as a throwback, there was an episode we did with on community-acquired pneumonia with Dr. Centaur, Uncle Bob, and he had a cool resource of like the prescription you can print out for symptomatic treatment, like fluids or mucinets or um, nothing, cough lozenges. Right. We'll have rest. to see if we can track that down again. It was like the CDC has like CDC. some sort of yeah. prescription yeah. that you can yeah, yeah, yeah. print out. Yeah, I mean, and I think the the negative to to trying to, I mean, the the reason that it's hard also to try to avoid antibiotics is it does take more time and more explanation on the part of the doctor. You know, if you see somebody and they say, "Hey, I'm feeling sick," and you write a script, you know, they're 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 satisfied. They go home and they yeah. will get better. Um, versus, you know, needing to talk to them for five minutes about why antibiotics may be more harmful than beneficial, yeah. and you know what to do if they don't get better, and and all of those different questions. Yeah. There was that amazing study. I, I'm not even going to try to remember actually where it was out of that actually looked at time of day and antibiotic prescriptions. Yeah. And as mm-hmm. the day progressed, later in the day, you just had cognitive fatigue and just sort of decision <laughs> fatigue. And eventually, like, fine, just take the Z pack. I just I don't have it in me anymore. So just a lot more people were sort of writing antibiotics <laughs> around 3 p.m. than 8 o'clock in the morning. So it's, there's a lot of factors that play into it. I think they've done that for opiates now and colon cancer screening too. If you have a like a evening appointment, you're less likely to get colon cancer. Right. Screening. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You're, you're getting no colon cancer screening, but opiates. But extended hours are not a good idea. I like that. Idea. It's just yeah. very early treatment for your metastatic colon cancer. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh no. Let's let's move on to our final case. I'll read it here. This is, and I apologize for the name, Lola Stuckley, a patient with obesity and constipation, was ordered a TSH and free T4 to check for hypothyroidism. And the labs came back with an elevated TSH, but a normal free T4. Dan, uh, what do the guidelines say about this situation? Just pound everybody with Synthroid or maybe even Armour Thyroid, the uh, the old favorite? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, so this is one that, uh, you know, that fast forward thing you have at the beginning saying, uh, please, you know, this doesn't relate to uh, individual <laughs> patient care. Um, that, that should be encouraged as being an ID doc who will be talking to you about subclinical hypothyroidism. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I mean, so I, I think um, this, is, this is a really interesting one as an epidemiologist because guidelines vary. Um, they often relate to TSH level and how elevated it is. Um, although, as far as I can tell, clinical data doesn't really support this. Um, you know, if, if your TSH is 7 versus your TH, TSH is 12, um, it, it doesn't appear that the randomized controlled trials have any um, evidence of different outcomes. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the, the issues that come up, so, I mean, so, uh, so many of the guidelines will recommend treating. Um, they vary some, and I would refer people to the British Medical Journal that had a, a great uh, summary of different guidelines um, in a visual fashion uh, done um, in 2019 um, by the, the MAGIC group, which uh, is Gordon Guyatt and some other um, evidence-based medicine types. But uh, essentially, there's a lot of variability, and there are a lot of guidelines that recommend treatment, but not really based upon clinical data. Um, 
And and I think it gets at some different issues that plague endocrinology and kind of relate to overuse. Um, I mean, one is just even the name. <laughs> it's a very strange disease to me. <laughs> you know, we, we call this subclinical, um, which you'd make make you think that there are no symptoms and, uh, you know, you read up to date and other things. And there's a range of like, either they're asymptomatic or they may have symptoms, which everybody has, <laughs> uh, you know, fatigue, uh, right. you know, dry skin, uh, cold intolerance, et cetera. You know, in, in, in then even overt hypothyroidism doesn't necessarily require symptoms. So it's this very com- confusing, um, mix of like, is there disease or is this just a biochemical phenomenon that we pick up through lots of testing? Um, and as best as I can understand, um, subclinical hypothyroidism really is a risk factor for disease with maybe about two to 5% of people per year developing actual hypothyroidism, um, out of those who have elevated TSH with a normal, uh, T- free T4. A lot of things in endocrinology, there's not really testing characteristics like sensitivity and specificity. Um, if you look for TSH, um, it's hard to find that, although, um, you know, the, the best numbers I can find about four to 20% of Americans who are asymptomatic will have an elevated TSH. So, uh, you know, in cardiology, they'd call that a false positive. Um, <laughs> you know, in endocrinology, they call it a subclinical disease, um, you know, <laughs> disease waiting to be found or something. <laughs> Um, but so the, the article that we highlighted, um, you know, really, um, was trying to look at like a few steps down the line. So if you find these people, you categorize them as subclinical hypothyroidism, and then you do a randomized controlled trial of treatment and do they benefit from treatment? Um, the, the clinic, the, um, the article that we highlighted, um, summarized 21 different RCTs and found no impact on quality of life symptoms. So these kind of vague, do you feel better with treatment? Um, uh, BMI, blood pressure, um, many different outcomes found no impact of treatment um, in a randomized controlled trial type setting. So um, although guidelines will recommend that uh, treatment is done, and you know, I, I wouldn't recommend people to sort of uh, ignore guidelines, I, I think it is relevant to note that uh, the randomized controlled trial type data um, can't find a benefit to, to treating these patients. So the recommendation, I guess the practical recommendation would be to have a very high threshold to treat, to treat these folks? Yeah, I think um, to, to kind of have a th- high threshold for patients who are interested in talking about it to probably, uh, you know, discuss that we don't really have evidence that this treatment will help them necessarily, but, you know, maybe worth experimenting and seeing if they, they think they feel better with it, um, you know, as the side effects of levothyroxine are not that great. Um and, uh, and probably to try to test uh, TSH less often, given that uh, it can kind of lead you down this pathway and, and you know, there's not a lot of evidence for um, screening with TSH. I was going to say something different, which is that I think clinically, unlike Dan, I am actually a primary care doctor. I think this is, <laughs> this is a really tricky one because, you know, like he pointed out, having a high TSH is really common. And the vague symptoms that lead you to check a TSH, like somebody's overweight and can't lose weight, somebody's a little fatigued, somebody's a little, like all these things are so common and everybody wants an easy fix. Right. So it's so easy to just throw levothyroxine at people. It's, it's really easy to check the TSH and then to have a low threshold for treating it. So I think this one's kind of clinically difficult. But I mean, what I would say is at the very least, if you're going to do that, it's worth doing it, like Dan said, in a trial of saying, okay, let's give Mm -hmm. this two months. Let's see if you feel better. We'll have like, we're going to look at your weight. We're going to look at your whatever, whatever is bothering them to see if it's better as objectively as possible and then stop the levothyroxine if they're not better. 
let's go to take home points. Uh, uh, Debbie, we'll start with you. And then Dan, uh, you can, you can give us, uh, one or two take home points as well. You know, it's a little hard because we talked about a lot of different clinical scenarios. I would say the big picture take home point is every time we do stuff to people, we might hurt them. <laughs> and I think as doctors, like we don't think about that enough and that we really need to when you, when you think about overuse, like all the stuff we do has potential harms and we need to remember that and be really thoughtful about it. And maybe that might be too big picture, but that's what I got. Oh, that's a great <laughs> take on point. Yeah, amazing. Great. I mean, and, uh, yeah, I would certainly uh, echo what Debbie said, you know, and, and maybe add just that, you know, medicine is complex and we don't know many things about patient care. Um, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty around what we do. And, and I think having some humility, um, you know, and really focusing on talking with patients and seeing what makes them feel better more than uh, just sort of indications and guidelines for things that may not relate to symptoms. All right. Justin, anything we're forgetting uh, before we let our guests go? No, I mean, I think we hit on a lot of cool things. And I think, you know, we'll talk about it in the intro and then asked about maybe the plug, but really just kind of, I'd say it's it's cool to emphasize that all of this has been um, summarized in the medical overuse series. And that I think part of medicine is, uh, uh, this is a great way to kind of keep up with the literature and that procalcitonin was really exciting, but this is kind of showing that there is some evidence that maybe we're not using it um, that well, or that the lung cancer screening, you know, when we get proud of ourselves for following guidelines, um, this is a a humbling but important part to kind of keep up to date with uh, what are ways to actually help the patients rather than just hurt them when we're doing things. Did you did you guys want to mention your website that you're working on? Is that ready for people to start looking for it yet, or do you or do you want the, them to just kind of keep it in mind for future? I'm honestly probably keeping it in mind for the future. Um, you know, we're we're trying to play with some different things that would help uh, teach people about testing and numeracy and whatnot. But uh, it it takes a lot longer than uh, I, I thought it would to to develop some of these things. All right. Well, you you know how to find us, so just send, let us know when it's ready for prime time, and we will send people your way. All right. Great. Great. All right. Thank you both so much. Yeah. This is Thank terrific. You. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All right. Have a great right. night. Good you night. Too. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> All right. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and do that. We need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode. Just Justin Burke. He did a phenomenal job. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, which I hear is quite popular, even though I've, I don't even know what Instagram <laughs> is. And Chris the Chumanchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. Stuart, I'd like to thank you for producing our wonderful theme music for the show. And, uh, and just remind people that until next time, I've been Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Justin Lee Burke. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. How have you been? Oh, well, that was that was the beginning. How's your knee? <laughs> Are we going to do this on air? <laughs> Paul, my knee is fine. Talk about his knee. I <laughs> I feel like we should. You know, so, it clicks every time I stand up, and it hurts really bad. What do you guys think uh, I should do? Maybe so go for see the a listeners. Doctor. 
and, and I'm not going to date this. So if you listen to it later, so you don't know exactly when we're recording this. But so we get a text about a half hour before recording tonight <laughs> saying, so I tore my ACL. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Are you doing okay? Do you need surgery? What happened? And then about a month ago, and that got like, and I just immediately lost interest. And so anyway, that's the story of Sewer's knee. Well, it's it's been I've been hobbling around for about a month. I put a a brace on it, and uh, uh, yeah, I was just trying to been trying to put up with it. Did you? I figured do... the clicking would go away. <laughs> it didn't. Have uh, you tried to sit him in a fin? I heard it works wonders. For and Motrin and Tylenol. Uh, I'm sorry. And Motrin and acetaminophen. Have you have you been diagnosed by imaging or physical exam? Physical exam. I have a positive anterior drawer. It hurts like heck when I stand up. It clicks. It's unstable. I have to hold my knee together with my hands when I stand up or I fall down. All right. I, I can't put weight on it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, if you're so- still if you're still there, <laughs> I uh, I retroactively give you permission to skip past this ten minutes. You are. Just- <laughs> This time, go with can, God. Can we, can we start over again? <laughs> uh, maybe I'll put the knee stuff at the end. All right, guys, we can, we can start over. As usual, we're coming in hot, Stuart. <laughs>